Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. We hope that this message will challenge you and encourage you on your journey of faith. If you would like to learn more about Journey Church, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at thejourneychurch.cc. Now enjoy the message. All right, so we are in week three of our Hellology series. And so if you're visiting with us today, notice you just dropped in the middle of a series on hell. Welcome, okay? <laughs> promise, I promise you, if you have not been here during this series, you want to go back and check out uh, the, the podcast or you can check out YouTube or the website and get the first two weeks. I'm telling you, the first two weeks are paramount. They're so, paramount. They're so important to have, okay? Um, and we're going to continue. So I'm going to just do a quick flyover recap. I'm not going to re-preach weeks one and weeks two because I know how y'all get. Y'all get antsy, and I got about a 40-minute timeline to preach, and then y'all start checking out. So we'll make it quick, all right? So we've been talking the last couple weeks on the topic of hell, and, and some of the things that we've realized, okay, is this. Number one, our theology determines our doctrines, right? Our theology determines our doctrine. Our theology, a theology is the study of the nature and character of God. And so our study of the nature and character of God determines our doctrines. Our doctrines are a held set of beliefs taught by the church, okay? They're beliefs taught by the church. So what I believe about God in his character, it sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? What I believe about God and his character will 100% shape and influence what I believe about other things, right? So what I believe about salvation, shaped in, by the nature and character of God. What I believe about love, shaped by the character and nature of God, right? What I believe about hell, come on, shaped in, 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 by the character and nature of God, right? So it's important to understand that. And so we talked about um, the fact that over the weeks, uh, these last two weeks, we talked about how uh, perfect theology is not found in how many academic words I can throw at you. It's not found in, in the breadth of books that you can check out of any library. Perfect theology is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you want to know what God looks like, he looks just like, come on, Sunday school answer. Everybody gets this one right. If you want to know what God looks like, he looks just like Jesus looks just like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus, and Jesus always looked like God. They are one and the same. Amen. And so if you want to know how God would do something, you need to really look at Jesus. That's why it's so important to go and take your Jesus lens, your Jesus glasses, right? How many of y'all wear glasses? I see you in here, right here. How many of y'all think that you're too cool to wear glasses at church? They left them at home. At least you're honest. All right, I see you. That's good. These glasses, if I take off my glasses, you all are all blurry. You're blurry as all get out. Like, I can tell who you are because I, I saw you with my glasses on. But right now, literally, you are like trees, right? That's what the guy said in the scriptures. It's hard to see. And so as we're reading through scripture a lot of times, if we're reading it just trying to figure out who God is, it looks like this. It looks blurry, right? But when you get Jesus in front of you and you start looking at scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ, things start to make sense, don't they? You start looking at Old Testament passages of scripture and you can get in there and you're like, hey, that doesn't look like Jesus. Something else must be going on here. Hey, this looks just like Jesus. I see you, Jesus. There you are. Right? I see you. And so Jesus is perfect theology, okay? And so we started talking about uh, the views of hell. For most of us in the room, come on, for most of us in the room, we grew up in an American Christian church, right? Evangelical church or maybe Catholic church. You grew up in an American church. And with Western American church, one of the things high on the belief scale, high on the doctrine scale, is this view of what? 
Come on. This is fuel hell. And we, a lot of us have been taught that what hell is, hell is the place that people who don't know Jesus Christ, who don't know God, go to when this whole thing is done, right? Really bad people go to this place called hell. And what does hell look like? Well, if you were raised in this type of church environment, hell was a place of fire where, where worms didn't die, right? And the worms eat at your body all the time, and fires weren't quenched, and it was just a hot place. And that's what you were taught about hell. That was the only view that you knew about hell. But we saw in week one and week two that really over the history of the church, there have not been one view of hell, but there's been three views of hell. Did you know that, right? The three views of hell that we talked about, uh, the, the, the one eternal conscious torment, that's the one we're most familiar with, right? But there was also another view of hell called annihilationism, right? Another one called universal reconciliation. Let me just define these for you real quick. Universal reconciliation, some people may have heard of that, and they go, oh, well, isn't that where everybody just gets in and, and nobody's left out? Isn't that just the excuse me? Isn't that just the all roads lead to heaven? Doesn't matter what you believe. Isn't that what that is? The answer to that question is no. That's not what that is. You see, universal reconciliation says it's the view that holds that those who die without Christ, like those who are in Christ, will pass through the fire, which is designed to purify, refine, restore everyone into a right relationship with God. Eventually, everyone will be redeemed and restored to our right relationship with God. It's a false thing to think that this does not involve any kind of pain or, or, or punishment. That's a false belief, right? That's one view. Now, the other view was annihilationism. Hold that right there. One view is annihilationism, and this is the view that holds that those who die without Christ are doomed to a season of suffering in hell. Sounds like what? Anybody know? It sounds like purgatory, doesn't it? So it sounds like purgatory. It says, so they hold the view that those who die without Christ are doomed to a season of suffering in hell until all their sins are atoned for, and then they are destroyed and cease to exist. Gone. Annihilationism. You got to be able to laugh during a series on hell. Amen. You got to, because it's some heavy stuff, right? You got to be able to crack a smile and laugh about something. At least a laugh at the sound effects, right? The last one, focus, focus. The last one is, uh, again, eternal conscious torment. It says those who die without Christ will suffer for eternity, separated from God in the lake of fire. How many of you heard about the lake of fire? Heard about the lake of fire? <laughs> I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm a child of the 90s. So when I hear about the lake of fire, I think about Nirvana. You hear anybody, you know? Where the bad folks go when they die, don't go to heaven where the angels fly. Go to the lake of fire and fry. See him again on the 4th of July. You, that's exactly what just popped in my head when I was like, you too. Yeah. Okay. Focus. Y'all pay attention. Those who, focus. Those who die. Without Christ, we'll suffer for eternity, separated from God in the lake of fire, where worms don't die and fire is not quenched. Now, now, did you know, like we talked about this before, there were six schools of theology in the early church. Within the first 500 years of the church, there were six schools, primary schools of theology that taught doctrine, that taught belief, that taught the nature of God. And here's the interesting thing. The, of the six schools, 
Four of those schools taught a view of universal reconciliation. Four of those schools. One is Alexandria. Two is Antioch. Three is Caesarea. Four is Edessa or Nisbis. One school taught annihilationism, and that is the school that was located in Ephesus or Asia Minor. Another school, one one school taught eternal conscious torment, and that school was located in the place called Hippo, which was a primary key city for the empire of... Rome. And so what happened in 500, around 500, is is the church and the state of Rome married each other. Christians went from being persecuted to being the state-sponsored religion. And what school of theology took rise to prominence? The school of, yeah, eternal conscience, the school of Rome, right? Hippo. So show that map real quick, just so you can see this. If you can see it on the screen, do you see that you have on, well, you're on your, on your right side. You're looking that way, right? It's the right side. On the right side, there's Asia Minor. That's Ephesus right there. And then there's Edessa and Antioch, right, and Caesarea and Alexandria. Do you notice how close those schools are all located to each other? Do you see that? The primary, I know I'm, I'm talking a lot. you got to go back and get the, let's do it again, right? The, the, primary, the primary language spoken in there and studied in there is Greek, right? It's Greek. Now, the school all the way over there is the school of what? Hippo, right? It's the school that, that, that believed and taught eternal conscious torment. And do you know what the primary language that they utilized in Hippo was? It was the language of Latin. Are you tracking with me? So they, they taught Latin, right? And so um, later on, the, the Latin translation of, of the Latin Vulgate of the scriptures happened. And from the Latin Vulgate was the translation of the King James Version of the Bible. And, and, and so that's how that went. And, and the primary scripture that we utilize and that we've used for a long time is the King James Version of the Bible, right? And, and so in that translation from Greek to Latin, there were all sorts of things uh, that were misinterpreted or mistranslated that led into the King James. So all that to say... There, there you have that, right? So that's kind of that essence. So what we saw, I'm going to get to it, y'all. Look, I'm trying to get this recap done. All right. This is all important. So what we saw was of all the words, all the places that the word hell was used in the Bible, it, hell replaced four words. And the King James Version of the Bible is 54, 56 different times that the word hell was used. But did you know in the Greek, the original Greek, there was no such thing as the word hell? Did you know that? It wasn't. And so these are the words that were utilized. Now, don't think I'm a heretic. Don't throw me out just yet. Hang in there. Listen, these are the words that were utilized. You ready? The first word is the Hebrew word sheol. Sheol is what you read in the Old Testament. Everywhere in the Old Testament that you see in your English Bible, the word hell, which is of its older translation, newer translations stop doing that, by the way. They use the word sheol. But everywhere in the Old Testament that you read the word hell, it's sheol. It just means grave. It's where people go. It's the grave. You die, you go to the what? Grave. Okay. In the Greek, hang in there. In the Greek, it's the word Hades, right? Hades is the exact same word used as as Sheol. It's just the Greek version of it, right? And so that was translated hell. Another place called Tartarus used one time by Peter in 2 Peter 2.4. That was translated to hell. That just meant deep pit, right? Okay? And the last one was Gehenna, which is the primary one that we're focusing on. Gehenna was the word that Jesus used and was translated as hell. Hell. It was actually the garbage dump located outside the city of Jerusalem in the Valley of Hinnom. So we go back and we looked at all this and we saw that a lot of the mistranslations for the 
word hell come from a misunderstanding of uh, apocalyptic hyperbole, right? Apocalyptic hyperbole. Now, apocalyptic hyperbole is defined. Here, hang in there. It's defined. Apocalyptic is describing or prophesying the complete destruction of the world. We did this. We're so dramatic. Remember when you were a teenager and you got grounded, you could never do anything ever again, and you're like, my world is over. My life is over. You ever have your kids go, my life sucks. They're apocalyptic language they got going on there. You're killing me. It's apocalyptic. You have kids, you know, amen. No matter how old they are, right, they're very apocalyptic, them kids. Describing or prophesying the complete destruction of the world. Again, hyperbole is an exaggerated statement or claim not meant to be taken literal. And we saw this when Jesus talked about if your eye causes you to sin, you're to what? Pluck it out. That's hyperbole, hyperbole, right? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better enter into God's way of doing things, God's life, than to enter into the fires of hell or the flames of Gehenna. We talked all about this. Last week, that the fires of Gehenna, and Gehenna was associated with all sorts of bad stuff, right? Child sacrifices from Israel's past. Go back and listen to last week. Child sacrifices, the burning of idols, and, and all sorts of things. Wars were waged in the Valley of Hinnom. Dead bodies were stacked up in the Valley of Hinnom. And 70 AD, the siege of Ro- uh, Jerusalem happened where Rome took and destroyed Jerusalem, literally physically destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And Josephus, a historian of that time period, said about 1.1 million Jews were killed, 100,000 enslaved. And do you know where they took all the bodies that were inside Jerusalem when they got done with them? They took them to the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, and they literally burned them, right, where the fires don't die and the worms, or the fires don't cease and the worms don't die. So, again, go back. So <clears throat> this is where we've been at. Today, I want to spend just the next few moments. I want to spend the next few moments talking to you guys on three specific passages of Scripture that are used to reinforce or maybe reinforce this idea of eternal conscious torment, to reinforce that these ideas. I want to spend time talking about them what actually, what they actually mean. The first one we're going to start with is the story about the sheep and the goats. Y'all, do y'all remember this story, the sheep and the goats, right? Okay, so let's check it out. Go over to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. We'll start there. I'm going to read this to you. And then we're going to ask some questions. Sometimes when we read passages of Scripture, sometimes when we read Scripture, we, we don't ask questions. We just assume. Right? When we read a scripture, we don't say, what is going on here? We say, this is what's going on here. We don't ask questions. We read our bias or our, what we've been taught back into the scripture. So then scriptures that have zero or nothing to do with an eternal conscious torment now all of a sudden have to do with eternal conscious torment. Matthew 25. Current Turn there if you have a paper Bible. I missed that. All right, Matthew 25. It says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
and he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left hand. Does this sound familiar? Y'all have heard this before? Okay, keep going. And it says, and then the king will say to those at the right hand, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Keep going. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Keep going. It says, and then the righteous ones will reply. I want you all to focus. Listen, the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing doing it to me, right? Watch, watch. And then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Keep going. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me, and I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked? I feel like Dr. Seuss right now. Naked or, or sick in a prison and not help you. And he said, I will tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Now watch. And they will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. Are you guys ready? Because some, some of us right now, we've read that, and, and the whole time you were reading it, you were like, hell, hell, hell. They're going to hell. Right? That's how we, we were taught it, right? I mean, that's how we read it. So, so let's, go, let's go through this. Let's, so let me just help you out here. Matthew chapter 24 is directly speaking to religious leaders and the disciples about the coming destruction of Jerusalem using hyper, uh, apocalyptic hyperbole. We now know that's talking about 70 AD. Go back and read Matthew 24. That's your homework. Go back and read Matthew 24, okay? All right? So Matthew 25 then falls into what's next. Matthew 25 then uses, so he's telling them all sorts of stuff that's about to happen. Remember the reminder for them was if you operate a counter to the kingdom of God, if you're operating counter to this, you're going to find yourself in devastation. Over and over and over again he says this to them, right? And so then he spends the next three, our next chapter on three different parables. Listen, the first one, Matthew 25, 1 through 13, is the parable of the bridesmaids. The second one is Matthew 25, 14 through 30. This is the parable of the three servants and their master's money. And then the third one is Matthew 25, 31 through 46, which we just read, read was the sheep and the goats. You all ready? I'm going to ask you some questions. You ready? Come on, y'all participate. You ready? All right. Here we go. All right. So who is this passage of Scripture focused on? Who is it focused on? It's, some would argue it's everyone, right? It's everyone. 
But the imagery is sheeps and goats. Sheeps and goats. The imagery is sheeps and goats, okay? Now watch. I want you to see this. Who did Jesus say he was to come to? Who did Jesus say he had come to? Are you ready? Matthew, 20, or Matthew 15, verse 24. Matthew 15, verse 24. Do you have that one? It says, and then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent, to, I was sent only to help God's lost, God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. The ministry of Jesus Christ, I want you to get this. The ministry of Jesus Christ in the Gospels was directly pointed and focused on the Jewish people. He was the promised Messiah. Now, did Gentiles benefit from that? Did did non-Jews benefit from that? Absolutely. We saw people healed and centurion daughter was raised to life. So the non-Jews benefited from the ministry of Jesus Christ. But the Gospels are highlighting a promise that was promised over and over and over again by the prophets. And that promise was a coming Messiah. And so Jesus' primary audience were the Jews. It wasn't until in Acts... Listen, it wasn't until Acts when Peter was on top of that rooftop. Remember that? And he was tripping real good. Y'all remember that? He saw three visions come down. He wasn't really tripping. He was just hungry, right? And so, but it's kind of the same, right? Have you ever been? Anyways, so the, the vision comes down. It's three things. Y'all remember? The sheet, come on, focus. The sheet comes down, and there were all sorts of animals on there. Y'all remember that? And, and, and he heard a voice, and the voice said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not me, Lord. I'm not going to touch anything that's unclean. And he said, Don't call what I made clean unclean. Remember that? That was the beginning of Peter getting the revelation of like, Oh, maybe this whole gospel isn't just about the Jews. And remember, he went to Cornelius' house right after that, and he said, I've realized that you guys get the Holy Spirit too. So remember the audience, primary audience. He's using sheep and goat language. He's he's talking to the Jews. So, no, no. but that's another question. So watch. It's in nations, right? Okay, okay, let's go back. Sorry. All right. So what is this passage of Scripture about? This passage of Scripture is about judgment. Okay, the passage of scripture is about judgment. All right, that's the key focal point. It's, it's, it's about judgment. Now, now, what is being judged? Oh, this is good. Listen, sometimes you just gotta ask questions, right? What is being judged? What did you say? The actions. Yeah, the actions are being judged. Now, now, their works. Again, who has gathered all the nations? Who separates the sheep and the goats? It's the king, the son of man, Jesus. Not the sheeps, not the goats. Did you hear me? Who separated the sheeps and the goats? Not the sheeps and not the goats. So why do we do that? Why do we walk around pointing fingers at people and declaring who's in and who's out? Right? Who, who separates them is, is Jesus. Why the imagery of sheep and goats? And sheep and goats have a long history with Israel both being used, listen, both being used in the sacrificial system to both cover sin and take away sin. But that they looked identical when they were kept together, the young goats, the kids, and they were kept together in the same fold. They looked identical. 
So when did this passage of Scripture take place? It took place before the cross. Before salvation was extended to the entirety of the world, it took place before the cross. And what did the shepherd not ask? This is good. What did the shepherd not ask? The shepherd didn't ask all who were gathered. He didn't ask who has prayed the prayer. I'm tampering. I'm tampering, aren't we? Because we made this passage. We've been taught this passage about what's going to happen when we go to hell. And those who have accepted Jesus Christ, they get to go here. And those who haven't accepted Jesus Christ, well, they're the goats. They're on the other side. But he never said, who's who's prayed the prayer? As a matter of fact, he looked at their works. Who, y'all, some of y'all are like, oh, I see it in your eyes. You're like, watch, ready? Ready, ready, watch, 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 watch. I know all you got to do is ask some questions. Who was shocked that they got in? The what? The sheep. Who, you did, good job, gold star. Who was shocked that they got in? Who, and I say got in. Y'all know I use that term got in because that's what we say, right? That's what we do. We use that term who's in, who's out. They're in, they're out. We're in, they're out. Who was shocked that they were in? It was the sheep. And they were shocked because they looked and said, well, how in the world did we get here? And he was like, because you did things for me. You did good things for me. And he's, they're like, when? Do you know what that tells you? That they weren't, oh, listen, that they weren't walking around thinking, got to do this for Jesus, 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 got to do this for Jesus. They were walking around and loving people the way that they were supposed to do, the way that the law had told them to do. Love love your neighbor as yourself. Take care of the poor. Leave your fields and let them glean from the edge of your field. Take a stranger into your house and treat him like he's a good person. This is all law-related. Come on, you know you're preaching good when you get goosebumps. Or you just had too much caffeine. So the sheep, it was the sheep that were like, how 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 did we get here for that, right? They didn't even even realize it. They didn't even know moments they were serving Jesus. Well, they didn't even know at times they were serving Jesus. They just knew, man, the way to live my life is to love. Now, you ready? Who were the ones that were shocked they didn't get in? The goats. The goats, they were the ones that were like, what you mean we're not getting in? What you mean we're not getting in? There's another passage of Scripture that says, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not done many wonderful works? And I'll look at them and say, depart from me, worker of sin. I don't know you. What do you mean? I look like I did good. I look just like a good follower of God. I look like a good Jewish person. I look just like they did. But they didn't, they didn't love. 
Now, at least you think, are you saying, oh, wait a minute, are you saying salvation is all about your works? No, we're coming, I'm not saying that at all. We're coming, we're, we're dealing with the text at hand and asking what does the text say and knowing who the primary audience of the text was, or the, the conversation was. So where do the goats go? They go where? To eternal punishments, in eternal fire, prepare for the devil and the demons. Where did the sheep go? They went to eternal life. So let's unpack that. Y'all ready? All right, y'all still with me? All right, I'm going to speak fast. Some of y'all are like, when were you not speaking fast? The Greek word for eternal, y'all stay with me. The Greek word for eternal is the word aeonius, aeonius. And at the root of it is the word eon, right, or aeon. It's where we get the, the term or the word eons. That's where we get it. So uh, aeonius, the Greek word aeon, it means, listen, it means endless duration of time, or it also means a period of time, an age, or an age to come. Now, the word in the Hebrew that, that was almost identical to the word in, in, in Greek is the word olam. Olam, every time you read it in Hebrew, is, is that same type of uh, connotation. It, it means a period of time, an age, or it could mean an endless duration of time. Actually, the way that they said endless duration was never really endless duration. The way that they used words, the word olam, for meaning something like eternal was they would say is without beginning and without, that's how they would use it. It is without beginning and it's without end. Now, here's the important thing. When the, trans, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, the word olam was replaced with the word aeonius. Makes sense, doesn't it, right? Okay. Here's the thing. When it is referencing the subject of Aeonius is incredibly important. Do you hear me? The subject of Aeonius is incredibly important. Because when the subject is God, it refers to God being without beginning and without end. But the word Olam or, or Aeonius, and you got to go back and look at it, throughout time has been used to not to reference things that do not have a or that that do have a beginning and do have an end. Okay? So when that judgment's being pronounced and it says, and the smoke will rise above this city forever and ever and never cease. That word olam there is not literally talking about smoke still rising forever. For if it was, wouldn't we be wondering now the, the mysterious thing that the news is capturing of why smoke is still rising from a city that no longer exists? Does it make sense? So when it's used to reference God, it references a without beginning, without end. When it's used to rest, rest, uh, reference destruction, people, or places, typically it's used as a period of time, an age, or an age to come. According to the theological word book of the Old Testament, the Septuagint generally translates both olam and aeon, which has essentially the same meaning, that neither the Hebrew nor the Greek word in itself contains the idea of endlessness is shown in the fact that sometimes they refer to events and conditions. It's like I just said that. Um, I was wondering where I, where I had it. It's right here. It says, and also, oh, let me back up. Sometimes referred to conditions occurred at a definite point of, in the past. Also by the fact that it is thought desirable to repeat a word, not just merely saying forever, but forever, ever. Forever, ever, 
Hey, y'all, listen. Did y'all get it? Okay, I was just making sure. Thank you. For somebody in the room, somebody, no, but just focus. So as you study scripture, you'll see this over and over again. So think about it. the word aeonius, a time, an age to come, okay? Subject matters, right? So let's look at the word punishment because this is the word that was also used, eternal punishment. The word punishment here is the word colossus, colossus. And this is what it means. It means, it has two primary meanings, correction and punishment. Correction, broken down, is a pruning, a docking, or to be held in check. Y'all tracking me? Y'all getting some good teaching. I'm telling you, you're going to have to go back and watch it again. Okay, let's do it again. It means a pruning, a docking, or to be held in check. Again, 2 Peter 2.4. Okay, go, go to, I have that on there. Go to 2 Peter 2.4. The New Living Translation says, For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell, which we know is the word Tartarus, by the way, in gloomy pits of darkness, and they are being held there for the day until the day of judgment. Now, go to the next translation that I have. Um, the New American Standard Bible revised. It says this. Remember, they revised it, and they started taking the word hell out of places it didn't belong. And it says in verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned but condemned them to chains of Tartarus, and handed them over to be kept for judgment, to be judgment, to be held in check. So, so you, are you tracking with me? Okay, now watch. Eternal life, eternal life, that's what the righteous went to. That's what the sheep went to. Eternal life is Aeonius Zoe. And it's the life of God in the age to come. Those, the sheep went into the life of God in the age to come. To come, we've looked at this before, eternal life. And we saw in John 17, 3, right? John 17, 3, when Jesus was praying in the garden, do you remember that? And he says, Lord, I pray that they may, and he says, and this is what eternal life is. I pray that they may know you, encounter you, experience you in Jesus whom you've sent. This is Aeonius Zoe, eternal life, encountering and experiencing God. The next one is eternal punishment. Aeonius Colossus. It is correction or punishment in the age to come. Hear me. It is correction or punishment in the age to what? What did it not say it was? It did not say it was torture. It did not say it was torture. It says these who didn't get it right, will go into the age to come. They'll go into a time of correction in the age to come. That's what it says. Now, wait, listen. You might say, well, what about the part about fire and the devil? That is hell. But listen, Matthew 25, 41. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away from you, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his demons. Are you ready? Okay. Devil here is the word diabolos. Do you know what the word diabolos means? Some of you are like, yeah, devil. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it means slanderer or false accuser. Slanderer or false accuser. And it says, remember, prepared for the devil, slander, or prepare for the slander and the false accuser. 
And the word angels here is the word angelos, <laughs> angelos. And it means, follow me, it means messengers, one who is sent, an angel. The word fire, it's the word pyre, P-Y-R. It means fire. But it's a specific type. So we know that fire is associated with correction and punishment. The goats will experience So then one might ask, is the fire prepared for the slanderer and his messengers? One, that leads to correction. That has been a debate all the way back in the early church. And we'll look at this more when we talk about the lake of fire. But from now, what does the text say and what have we read into the text are two different things. Are you tracking with me? How many of y'all got ten more minutes with me? You got 10 more minutes? All right. 10 more minutes. All right. So we've looked at the parable of the sheep and goats, and we've answered the questions of what it's talking about. And we see the passage of Scripture is often talking about, uh, that, that is used as often co-signed for eternal conscious torment. But it does not co-sign eternal conscious torment. It doesn't. It just specifically talks about punishment and life. Okay? Another one. The rich man and Lazarus. This one's really used to talk about hell. So let's talk about this one real quick. Rich man and Lazarus. Verse 16 of chapter uh, Luke. Luke chapter 16. You got that one? Pull that one up. There it goes. Now watch. Y'all heard it because this is about hell too. This is the one you knew about hell too. Watch. It says, and Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived, in the, lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. Y'all say Lazarus. Very important. Who was covered with sores. Keep going. It says, as Lazarus laid there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores, right? Finally, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to sit beside Abraham at a heavenly banquet. And the rich man also died and was buried, okay? And he went to the place of the dead, There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance and with Lazarus at his side. Now watch. It says, and the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity on me. Send who? Y'all say it loud. Send who? Think about what he just said. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. Keep going. But Abraham said, son, remember during, that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had what? Nothing. So now he is here being what? Comforted, and you are in anguish. Keep going. In verse 26, it says, and besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. And then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at last send him. Him who? Come on, send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, right? Keep going, watch. For I have five brothers, and I wanted them to, I want to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. Keep going. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. You hear it? Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. So who is the audience? 
the Jewish people. Gentiles didn't read the law very seldom. The law was not given to the Gentiles. It was given to the Jewish people. And it says, and the rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. All right, y'all ready? I'm going to ask some questions again. You ready? Let's ask some questions. What happened when both the rich man and Lazarus died? What happened? They switched places. They switched places, and now the rich man finds himself in the place of pain, and Lazarus finds himself in the place of comfort. Who is the rich man talking to? Come on, who is he talking to? Abraham. Close. Usually it's Jesus is the answer, but it's Abraham this time. Who is he talking to? He's talking to? Do you not find it funny? He's not talking to God. He's not talking to Jesus. He's talking to Abraham. Ready? Watch. What was, he's talking to Abraham. What was the first thing the rich man asked Abraham? What was the first thing? Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue. Did you notice what his first statement was not? Why am I here? His first question was not, why am I here? What? Watch, watch, watch. The second thing, do you know what he did? He still was trying to order Lazarus around like he was a servant. He still thought that in this this environment, he was still the one clothed in the robes of royalty. See, I should still be able to get you to send that slave over to get me something because that's the way I see things, and that's not the way it is. Did you notice that the rich man is addressing Abraham and not Lazarus? Right? Did you notice that the rich man wanted his brothers to be warned and for Lazarus to do it? I need my brothers to be warned. Why? Because all of us are knuckleheads. Because all of us are doing this thing wrong. I need somebody to go back and tell them, don't treat poor people who sit outside your gate with contempt and ignore them. Go back and tell them that. They need to, Lazarus needs to show them, but like I was a dude outside your brother's house, now he's in hell. Even though it never says hell. Never says hell. He's in this hot place, right? Send Lazarus. They've been over my house. They've seen Lazarus outside the gate. They don't know who he is. Send Lazarus. Warn them. This lifestyle refusing to love your neighbor will end up biting you in the end. And the refusal to care for the poor will, will end up making you poor in the end. What did Abraham say to the rich man? If they won't listen to who? Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen to somebody who is resurrected. That's a play. Jesus is talking about himself. He's talking to the Pharisees. See, you're supposed to know who I am because you read the Moses, you read the law, you read the prophets, you're supposed to know who I am. But guess what? You won't even believe it when I raise back to life. As a matter of fact, you'll send some guy named Saul around to hunt Christians down, pull them outside, and kill them. I know this. So who 
again, as Jesus talked to, he's talking to the religious leaders of his day, the ones who were supposed to know the law, the ones who were responsible for interpreting it for everyone else, and the ones who were held to a higher standard, the ones who would kill Jesus and later deny that a resurrection even happened. We get so fixated on details of the story that we miss the moral content of the story. That God's kingdom is different than the world's kingdom. God's kingdom is different than the world's kingdom. I don't need to worry about the poor person. I don't need to worry about the sick person, the homeless person. I don't need to worry about these people who are disenfranchised or in the fringe of society. I don't have to worry about it. After all, I'm rich, and because I'm rich, then I am blessed by God. And they're poor, and they're poor because they're cursed by God. That's what they believe. But Jesus flips this whole thing around, and he says, don't you realize that It's not about what you have. It's about what you're doing with it, right? And he says, when it Jesus who says, the first will be last, and the least will be the greatest. Isn't that what he said? The story is not about hell in the sense of a place of eternal conscious torment, it's challenging us to ask the question, how am I treating the people around me? Now, now watch. This parable is actually one that had been told at different times in, in different generations prior to Jesus. And scholars know that it came from Egyptian background. And it wasn't about necessarily Abraham. But the content of the story was the same. And so the Jews around this time, during the 400 years before Christ came, they developed a theology of punishment and torment that involved fire. So Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, and he says, how do I get this across to them? Well, I'm going to take something they've heard, and I'm going to bring it home. And we'll make this about Abraham. And we'll make this about Moses and the prophets and how they live out their law and point them to me. That's what he did. That's what he did. So what is the text saying? Not not what are we reading into the text. What is the text saying? Not what we're reading in to the text. This text is not about eternal conscious torment. It's not. It's got a bigger picture. All right. I'm going to wrap right there. But I have a whole other section. I'll just add that next week. I know. I keep doing that. Kim may never preach again. All right. So <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know, but are you learning something, church? Are you hearing something you haven't heard before? Are you, is it causing you to see something different? I, I, I'm not trying to force you to believe something you don't want to believe. I'm just trying to help you ask the questions and show you what it's saying, right? Does it make sense? So we'll finish this. Uh, we'll continue this next week, and, uh, and we'll spend time next week really hitting on uh, the lake of fire because that one seems to really kind of throw everybody for a loop on the lake of fire. So let's go ahead and bow your heads. Close your eyes right where you're at. I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll dismiss. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your goodness. 
And I pray for every person in earshot right now of my voice, those who are in the house today, those who will listen or watch later on, God, that you would give them wisdom and discernment, Father, that you would help them to see clearly, God, that you would just move and speak to the hearts and their minds and that your goodness would continue to be revealed. Father, we thank you for loving us the way you do and being such a good father. We worship you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.